The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the ninth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So this is Transfiguration Sunday, and I'm going to do something a, a little bit different today, which is I'm not going to preach uh, a, an expositional sermon, like explaining the verses in the text. I'm going to do something just a little bit broader. And um, if you're interested in questions of like, why Moses and a lot, so the, I mean, it's just a weird story. All of our readings today are, are kind of weird, just weird, like uh, crazy events happening. If you're interested in like, you know, why Moses and Elijah, uh, why the voice from the clouds, um, why the, you know, what's the deal with the synoptic gospel writers mentioning that his, Jesus's clothes were super bright, uh, what's the deal with all that, what's going on there? I've preached on that in the past. I think every, every time I've preached here, I've, I've kind of gone through those details. But today I want to do something broader, and I want to look at the question of um, why a lot of you know this if you grew up in uh, churches that, that use the common lectionary like ours. Why does transfiguration stand where it does right at the end of Epiphany, which is the season from Christmas where we look at a lot of texts that talk about this is what Epiphany means, God revealing through Jesus the glory of his son, you know, just doing crazy big things, uh, powerful miracles, powerful teaching, casting out demons. And then, you know, so we're transitioning this Sunday into Lent next Sunday, and kind of the difficult, lonely, gut-wrenching path to the cross and fallenness and weakness. Why is transfiguration right in the middle of that? And how does it serve as, uh, I used to say a pivot point between these two, and th- th- this is the reason why I'm preaching differently, is because this year it occurred to me as I was studying that it's less a pivot point and a way to interpret both Epiphany and Lent. And I, I know that that was just kind of a bunch of gobbledygook I just said right there. We'll just have to talk about it in the sermon. And so I kind of want to talk about the connection between Epiphany and Lent and Transfiguration right in the middle. And I want to do it by asking you guys if you've ever heard of the concept of thin spaces. Has anybody ever heard of that? It's an old, um, it it actually is uh, Celtic. It's it's an Irish thing uh, from, you know, pre-St. Patrick days, from the pagan uh, days in in Ireland, where uh, uh, the Celts had this notion that there are different spaces in the world, geographical spaces, where the gap, the the thin spaces, the gap between just the everyday world that you and I live in and the world of the gods and goddesses is super thin and that it's easy to break through that at different times. There's different spaces uh, where that's possible, where you're really, really close to like the parallel universe of divinity. Um, Thin spaces. Of course, there are thick spaces too, 
where you just completely closed off from, you know, no sense of the divine and no possibility that the gods or the goddesses are going to break through to you there. And um, when, when, uh, when, when Ireland was converted to Christianity, um, St. Patrick and others picked up on this notion of thin spaces and used that as a way to talk about what Jesus has done. That the wall between us and the transcendent, the wall between us humans and God, and that wall's been built up by our sin. We weren't created for that wall. We were designed to know God, and that's why everybody craves God. I mean, whether you're a religious person or an atheist, there's this sense that, like, I, you know, I want to, if there is something transcendent, I want to know that transcendent thing. That's why it's there. But the reason why that gap exists for everybody, both atheist and religious people, Christians, uh, devout Christians, there's a gap, there's a wall that is because of our sin. But that Christ has become a thin space for us. And i just remind you, kind of a note to Bene, that when we looked at Revelation last year, that was one of the points of Revelation, is that in Revelation 3 and 4, you get this picture of like just the humdrum normal church. Like it's, it's from the first century, but it looks like churches like our church. Like it's just kind of, you know, sometimes boring. People are struggling. People are doing well. There, there's infighting in the church. There's people struggling with brokenness and with their own sin and the sinfulness, the, 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 the pain that others have caused them. But simultaneously going on at the same time and actually weirdly enough in the same place is the vision of Revelation 5, 6, and 7, which is this vision of, of immense glory that where Jesus is, the church is, whether that's the church in glory or the you know, the bums sitting here in the pews and standing up in front of you right now, that Jesus is the ultimate thin space. And so this notion of thin spaces has, has caught on. It's been picked up recently. I've heard it several times. And, and I'll, I'll talk to you about the way that, one of the problems is this, is when we talk about thin spaces in, in the West, hardly any of us are out and out pagans. When I say pagan, I mean like we worship the spirit world. Almost all of us are either like really agnostic or just sort of functionally agnostic. Like you can't know if God exists. And, you know, if he's there, he's not going to show himself to us. He's, he's the, you know, the Epicurean God. He's the deist God that's way out there. And, you know, kind of looks down and every once in a while he'll send a thunderbolt down on somebody he doesn't like or he'll send a pay raise down on somebody he does like. But basically he's way out there, not really involved. And so what do thin spaces mean? Why, why, have the, why, why is the notion of thin spaces caught on in a culture which is essentially agnostic. And um, there was a, uh, an article that I found when I was reading about this a, a, two weeks ago. By, uh, it's from the New York Times, and it's from several years ago. It's by a travel writer named Eric Weiner. And he, he works for NPR, and he writes for the New York Times, and he's written four or five books about travel. But he wrote a piece in the New York Times about thin spaces called Where Heaven and Earth Come Closer. And it's about thin spaces. And, and he was talking about, so he's a travel writer, somebody who's traveling around and looking for thin spaces. And he, he defines thin spaces this way. Thin spaces are, he says, locales where the distance between heaven and earth collapses and we're able to catch glimpses of the divine or the transcendent, or as I like to think of it, the infinite whatever, which is just a classic postmodern phrase. It's, you know, it says there's something out there that's transcend the infinite but you can't really care about it too much because you're not going to get that close to it anyway. So it's the whatever. It's the infinite whatever. It's a great phrase. And, um, you know, so for, for him, what are thin spaces when there's, there's really not anything you can define? It's just some sort of like experience of the infinite whatever floating around out there. 
For the contemporary person, for me and you, you know, for contemporary Westerners, Americans, thin spaces are typically about ourselves. What is something that I connect with? What is something that makes sense to me? I quoted to you last week. No, 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 it wasn't last week. I take that back. It's actually probably about a month ago. A piece from uh, Chuck Klosterman's essay, This is Emo, where he, he and I'm, I, don't, I, I didn't write it down again, but I'll try and like recreate it. Uh, he says that he has not met any mentally healthy Americans who have not struggled with the notion that you can only have transcendent romantic, you can only have a transcendent experience by having a romantic relationship. Like falling in love, you know, making out with a beautiful person. That's like, that gives you this feeling of like, gee, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than the two of us. This is huge. Chuck Losterman has never met a, 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 a mentally healthy American who does not have that conception. And he's also never met any one of those people who has not struggled with the fact that they've never actually achieved that in a romantic relationship. So these two things. So what, what's Klosterman saying? He's saying that like, you can have a transcendent experience. It's going to happen through romance. It's going to happen through some sort of like romantic, interpersonal, sexual experience. That's where transcendent is at. Musicians and artists and actors all know about this. They know about the, the transcendent experience. There's nothing like, I mean, listening to beautiful music or watching an excellent theater performance uh, can be a transcendent experience. This feeling of like, this is so, this music is not just notes on a page. It's not just notes coming out of these instruments. There's something big and beautiful happening here. Musicians know that, that actually making the music. Actors know that actually performing in the stage play gets you even closer to that experience of like, this is mind blowing. There's people watching me, listening to me, and I'm playing this instrument or I'm performing this scene and they're on the edge of their seats and they're captivated by this thing that I, to some extent, don't even have any control over after it leaves my instrument or leaves my mouth on the stage. This experience of like getting to this big, big thing. Athletes know this as well. There's something about making, making a big shot to win a game with people going wild and your teammates super excited and the opposition crushed that's bigger than just like throwing a ball through a metal hoop. It's like this powerful experience. This is the same for travelers who are always looking for, if you, if you, for those of you guys who, who love to travel, always looking for some sort of location where you can experience this. And this is kind of where Eric Weiner's at. This is true for uh, wine drinkers and diners looking for the, the, the next fantastic, unbelievable glass of wine or meal. This is true for gardeners who work hard so that they can stand at a certain moment sometimes in May, where it all comes together and you think, this is beautiful. This is more beautiful than I could have thought about this in my mind. This is true for business people, chasing down that one fantastic deal where everything comes together, everything falls in place. The bank accounts and the power start to expand. This is true for politicians who maneuver, make speeches, stump, and when they get elected, their excitement is way bigger than just, I've got a new job now. Eric Weiner, these are all things about ourselves. These thin places, these places where we look for the transcendent are all places where something about me is going to connect with a big feeling, some sort of big feeling. Eric Weiner says this later on in the, in, in the essay in the New York Times, he says this. And he's asking the question because this question comes up, what makes a place thin? Like, and, he, and he basically just says, well, it's your own personal experience. He says, so what exactly makes a place thin? It's easier to say what a thin place is not 
A thin place is not necessarily a tranquil place or a fun one or even a beautiful one, though it may be all of those things too. And now he's about to get offensive. Disney World is not a thin place, he says. Nor is Cancun. Well, I, who gives him the right to say that? What, what, if, what, what if Disney World is a place where you experience the transcendent? What if Cancun, you've come in touch with emotions and powerful thoughts that are bigger than you are? Like what gives him, but here's the thing is, here's why he says this, is because Disney World's not his thin place. It's not that Disney World's a thin place or not. It has everything to do with him and less to do with Disney World. It doesn't have anything to do with Cancun. It has to do with how, what he thinks about Cancun. Thin places relax us, yes, but they also transform us or more accurately unmask us. In thin places, we become our more essential selves. In other words, thin places connect with me and who I personally am, and I achieve transcendent experience when what I like, when with what I think, connects with a place where that's magnified, and the way he says it is it unmasks myself. Like, I, I discover more about what my likes and dislikes are, what my feelings are, what my thoughts are, what my beliefs are. That's the way we usually, in an agnostic world, talk about thin spaces. The story of the transfiguration, though, is going to offer us an alternative to that. Jesus is revealed as the transcendent one. Not the ultimate whatever, but the ultimate whoever. The one place on earth where God and humanity intersect. He's both God and man. The one place on earth where time and eternity connect. The one place on earth where the real, if you, I, I use that in, in scare quotes, the real and the ultimate come together and become the same thing. That's what Jesus is. He is the thin place. And this is very, very different, I think, than the thin places that we craft as moderns, as postmoderns, as, as agnostic Westerners. I'll give you a few differences here. First of all, this thin place doesn't come from ourselves. This thin place is not dependent upon my likes and my dislikes. Do I like Jesus? Yes, sometimes. Do I dislike Jesus? Yes, sometimes. Just like the rest of you. But Jesus is there whether I like or dislike him. It's ultimate reality. And I can't say, well, Jesus is kind of like Disney World. I don't care for it. So it's not my thin place. Thin places, if they're real, are thin places whether I go there or not. Thin places whether I care about it or not. Thin places whether I think it's true or whether I get snarky about it. It's not based on my personal preferences. Second, Jesus, unlike the thin places of Eric Weiner and the rest of us, Jesus doesn't primarily unmask ourselves. Jesus' goal is not to help me to get to realize my true potential. Jesus is not here to show me myself. Jesus is here primarily to show us himself, to show us God, the eternal God. And secondarily, when we as human beings come face to face with the infinite, Come face to face with God made flesh. Come face to face in that thin place with the transcendent. Then we truly begin to know ourselves. So don't get lost in, well, I'm not a Disney World person or I am a Disney World person. Okay, it's not really me though. It's, it's where you like to go on vacation or where you don't like to go on vacation. But is that really get, getting to who I am as a human? Does that fine glass of wine or that fantastic symphony that you listen to or that unbelievable location that you travel to or that shot that you made in the big game? Is that really getting down to the core of who you are? Or is it an experience that comes and goes? It's there with the big shot, but it's gone the next game when you blow it. It's there with that unbelievable vacation, 
But the next time you get stuck in a really cruddy motel, it's gone. It's there one time when you go to Disney World, but the next time and you have a bad experience and the weather's miserable and the lines are long and the prices got raised since you were there last time, it's gone. It's all flowing out of me, so it's temporary and it's not really real. But coming to face with the really real, the capital P, permanent, the eternal son of God who loves me and wants a relationship with me, then I'm free to grapple with who I really am and quit you know, messing around with all the fringe stuff like the food I like or my vacation spots. It's not based on, it's not about unmasking me, it's about unmasking God and showing the face of God to us and then being transformed. Third thing is this, is it can't be recreated by us. I'm not gonna read you this, but in his, in his piece, Eric Weiner says, this is the goal of traveling, is to hunt for the thin spaces. And I kind of like, as long as he, if he can get rid, rid of all the transcendent junk, I'm with him, like traveling is fun because you're looking for that really cool spot. I agree with him. But if the goal is to somehow recreate a transcendent experience, to somehow find a way that we can manipulate transcendence so that if I go to this certain spot, I can make it happen again. This is not the way that Jesus works. He's not a cipher. He's not a destination. He's not an entree on a menu. He's a person infinite God who shows himself when he wants to and you can't control him. There's this scene in A Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right at the beginning where, I, I know not everybody read, that read this, so just take 10 seconds if you haven't read it and ch check out for a minute. Take a mental break. L Lucy goes in, you know, the first time she goes into the, the wardrobe, the, you know, the closet, and she gets to the place where the back of the wardrobe should be. She finds herself walking into this really incredible magical land called Narnia. Uh, again, for those who have ears to hear. She tries to go again later and take, uh, I can't remember, a, a family member or something, and she opens it, oh, no, no, she, she's in, and her brothers and sisters try to go in, and they open it up, and they get to the back. I botched up the details somehow. Somebody goes in there, and they try to get to the back, and it's just the plywood in the back of the wardrobe. The thin place has closed, and now it's a thick place. And, and Lewis's point is this, is that you can't manipulate it. It's not like you, you find the formula, and then you've got it. You know, Peter, James, and John are just kind of like enjoying their lives, walking around with Jesus, taking care of business. And then they get this incredible, <clears throat> they get, they get this incredible experience where they see Jesus in all of his glory unveiled. It's not like someday, sometime later they could be like, hey, you know what, let's go back to that mountain and see that again. God does what he does. He makes his move. And when he makes his move, you take it, and then you let him make his next move, which might not be different. It's not a thin space. It's a thin person. I have another kind of problem, though, which is this. And this is, that's the end of the first part of the sermon where I'm arguing that Jesus is this thin space. And now I'm going to tell you why I'm preaching this differently this year because I have to correct something that I've said in years past. Not, not, not correct, but adjust it a little bit. In the past, and I know because I have my sermon notes, in the past uh, Transfiguration Sundays, I've preached that the Transfiguration really reveals Jesus, really reveals God, who he is in Jesus. That's the one moment where the disciples can really see God. You know, like they're walking around Galilee with him, and he's a construction worker. It's normal life. But then all of a sudden, they can see him for who he really is. The clouds, the shining clothes, the voice out of heaven. And they're really locked into it. And that's true, but it's perhaps a bit misleading. It's not all the truth. And I'll tell you why I was actually 
convicted about, I need to correct this this year. It's because of this question. When is Jesus fully revealed at God? Just at the transfiguration? When is Jesus fully revealed at God, as God? Is it in Epiphany, where he's doing like powerful miracles and people are like, whoa, we've never heard somebody teach with this authority? What about later on, on the path of the cross? What, what about later on in Lent, when he's really struggling, when he's frustrated, when things aren't going well, when his disciples just won't get it, they keep arguing about who's going to have all the power? When is Jesus truly God? And the answer, of course, is he's revealing himself as truly God all the time. Transfiguration is a different kind of experience, but it's not the ultimate experience. And there's practical reasons for why, you know, why I want to talk about this, which I'll get to in a second. But this question of like, when is Jesus most truly God, I think gets at the heart of what, it, it should get at the, let me, let me talk to you Christians for a second. The Christian experience is directly tied. Your, your experience as a Christian in day-to-day life is directly tied to who Jesus is and how he reveals himself to us. When is Jesus most revealing God to you? When he's commanding demons to come out? Or when he's standing on trial in front of Pontius Pilate, hearing lie after lie about himself told? When is Jesus most truly God? Is it when he's feeding 5,000 and people are like, this is nuts, this guy can make bread out of his bare hands? Or is it in John chapter 6, which is one of the most heartbreaking passages in, in, in Jesus' life. John 6, he's teaching, and he's admittedly, I'm not going to talk about John 6, he's talking about hard stuff, hard to understand. And when you do understand it, he's saying really sort of dramatic, over-the-top things about himself. Like, like you have to eat me if you want to see the kingdom of God. You have to drink my blood. And people are like, no, we're checking out. And there's this scene at the end of John 6 where Jesus has this big crowd of people around him and he's teaching and they all start to like slowly walk away. And the crowd gets smaller and smaller. And he turns and looks at his disciples and he says, it's heartbreaking. The only way to make it not heartbreaking is if you pretend like Jesus is some sort of Superman who doesn't have feelings, which we know from the rest of the Gospels it's not true. He looks at his disciples and he says, are you guys gonna leave too? You guys know what that's like. You know what it's like to be lonely. And to look at somebody, one of the only people close to you that's still there and think, I hope they don't go. Is Jesus less God then? Or is God somehow experiencing loneliness too? Is Jesus less God when he does the miracles? Or is somehow in his trial, God is being lied about and doesn't fight back. Is Jesus God just when he heals or when he bleeds? Is Jesus just a God who stands on mountains and receives thunder and glory and bright lights? Or is Jesus God when he's lynched and assassinated for a crime he didn't commit? This is why this is important, because for those of us who are seculars, for those of you who aren't Christians, And for those of us who are Christians too, we spend our lives trying to find powerful experiences where our heart's desires are fulfilled, 
but we can never find them. And when, when we do, they're temporary. And so we constantly walk around thinking, what's wrong with my existence? Why am I not happy? Maybe if I could win another award, or maybe if I got a promotion, or maybe if I found true love, or maybe if I had better friends, maybe if I had a better house, or maybe if I went on a decent vacation this year. Something wrong with us, we can't get there. And Christians are no different is the thing, is that for those of us who are Christians, we spend our lives, based on preaching like I've done to you, we spend our lives trying to get to the Christian mountaintop. Powerful emotional experiences. Powerful experiences where ministry is just going great and the crowds are all there. Powerful devotional moments when we're in God's word and we're seeing things we've never seen before. And we're connecting with people over God's word that we've never had connections with before. We're looking for emotional rapture, we're looking for awe, and we're looking for wonder. Is Jesus only on the mountaintop though? Or is Jesus in your crummy devotions? Is Jesus only on the mountaintop? Or is Jesus in your ministry experience where nobody's showing up? And those who do are walking slowly away. And you look around at the two friends you've got left and you say, are you guys gonna hang out? Are we gonna keep doing this or what? Is Jesus just in those times in community group when you're really connecting? Or is Jesus in those moments when you're at home alone and loneliness is like an actual visceral lump in your gut? Where's Jesus at? Is he just on the mountaintop? Or is it Jesus on the cross too? Is it Jesus just from the empty tomb? Or Jesus on the cross? And you'll forgive me because my, my, my goal was, you know, I, it is true, like, that the cross, Jesus' death, does lead to resurrection. It, it, it's true that your loneliness does lead to community eventually. It's true that that terminal cancer you have is going to eventually lead to resurrection on the last day. But what I did, what, what, what I did, and I didn't do it intentionally, forgive me, was I gave you the impression that somehow that's less. God is more in the mountaintop, and the rest is just kind of waiting, biding time until you can get to the good stuff. And, and I was wrong. Because the reason why the transfiguration is between Epiphany and Lent is because it belongs to both of them. The Jesus who is feeding the 5,000 and casting out demons, and the Jesus who is on trial for his life and is going to lose this trial, and is going to be killed by an imperial system that crushes dissent, is the same Jesus. It's the Jesus of the transfiguration, all three times. So all I'm saying this morning is stay with Jesus. He is the only true thin place. He's the only true transcendent. And whatever you're experiencing right now, it could be fantastic, it could be bad. In a few weeks, it'll be reversed. Jesus is there with you, experiencing those same things. The divine, ultimate reality, the ultimate whoever, God is in your pain just as much as he's in your glory. He's in your loneliness just as much as he's in your friendship. He's in the cross just as much as he's in the empty tomb. Stay with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the transfiguration. Thank you for the vision that you gave uh, Peter, James, and John and that you've given us through your Holy Scripture just as real an experience as their experience of the glory of your son, Jesus. Father, help us to believe and confess that that glory, the divine glory of Jesus, the ultimate thin space, is always there wherever your son, Jesus, is and rely on that. We pray this in his name, amen.